Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, the Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Hey, Bern. Last week, we talked about media. Uh, at the end of the episode, we talked about uh, sort of tech target, trade media, business media. And I want to go deeper on some different media topics you've been uh, you've been writing about. So first, why don't we take a little bit of a historical overview? You, you wrote about how media was a great business for a brief period, um, but uh, why don't you unpack why that was, and then and then what changed? Yeah, so I I like to compare it to the the meme about how it used to be that a single family earner could afford a house, a car, and send their kids to college and all that, which one is just not not actually true. But two, to the extent that it was nearly true, um like it would still it was still by modern standards a very low standard of living. Like houses were smaller, cars were a lot worse, etc. Um but like the the people for whom that was true in the fifties were generally um unionized workers at big three auto companies. They actually did have a really, really sweet gig. They were paid very, very well. Um and the the auto companies were enormously profitable. It'll it kind of worked out for for everybody. But that was um that was a function of most of the rest of the world's industrial infrastructure having been destroyed. Like the US was pretty much untouched um and had the US government had subsidized a lot of capital um and capital expenditures for for manufacturing. So like you have this huge amount of capital, um, and then labor is a complement to that capital. Um, you also sort of have a political consensus of um we we do want to be pretty centrist, like we need some level of safety net, some level of work record friendliness, because it's like it's way better to have unionized workers voting for Eisenhower than to have non-unionized workers who are voting for the Communist Party. So, um, like a lot of circumstances had to kind of collide in such a way that yes, those workers were paid extremely well, but it was actually even within the, uh, within manufacturing that the big automakers had very generous union deals. And then a lot of the people who were working at their suppliers had much worse deals and just a much more tenuous job. Um, big car companies, they are, they do make stuff, but they're also coordinating this whole supply chain. And, um, part of, part of their economic role is to figure out which of their suppliers do they need to temporarily support, perhaps, which of their suppliers do they want to just, uh, brutally negotiate with? Because, you know, if you, if you're selling to Ford, Ford is probably most of your business. And so if Ford tells you that, uh, they do like the, your product and they're going to cut the price they pay for it, you pretty much have to say yes. So, um, so like you have all of these forces that coincided for a very brief period to mean that a guy with a high school education could get a job potentially at 
one of these car companies and could actually have, you know, by, by the standard of the time, a really, really nice lifestyle. Like Detroit was the, the highest income city in the U.S., I believe, for a while. Um, and then that kind of went away, but the, the, the meme stuck around. And, um, I, I kind of felt this way when I was reading about, um, the, the UPS negotiations and how they, they got extremely high starting salaries for truck drivers that, you know, like in, you know, in a generation, people will sort of have this vague memory of it used to be that if you got a job driving a truck somewhere, you could afford, you know, multiple vacations per year and have your own place and be a single, you know, single earner and have it, you know, provide for your whole family, et cetera. But it was, yeah, it's, it's a very, very small sample of what was going on in the aggregate. And, and bringing that to media, um, there's, so when I went back and looked at some of the history of the media business, it's just amazing how great it was to actually own or work for a newspaper, um, from roughly the seventies to the early nineties. Also, um, kind of similar thing for, for print magazines. So when, when I'm talking about media, I'm, I'm mostly talking about print because A, I'm, I'm a print person, you know, grew up reading the newspaper every day before school, um, and still read a lot. And I do read, you know, now, now it's on the iPad, but it's some of the same publications that I used to read in, in high school, middle school. Um, so yeah, I, uh, so I, I tend to think of these, this in print terms, but also print people do have this outsized impact on the discourse because other media people will read them, whereas print people do not necessarily watch that much cable news. So there's usually, usually the memes propagate through the, the print and then post print digital world rather than through video. Um, at least like the kind of the fancier memes, the, the, uh, the more elite memes do. Um, and. So when you, when you look at the decline in the number of working journalists and the massive decline in their job security, the fact that, um, people are making the same amount in dollars for a freelance article that they were making in the nineties and, you know, inflation has not been zero since the nineties. So, um, it does look pretty bad, but it's a lot of that is just driven by how great it was to own a monopoly newspaper. But the newspaper as a monopoly is actually a fairly recent development. It used to be that the structure of the newspaper business in the U.S. was that any major city would have at least two newspapers. There was usually a morning paper and an evening paper. Morning paper was read by white-collar workers before they went to work. Evening paper is read by blue-collar workers after they get home from their shift. Um, factory shifts do tend to start a little bit earlier than white-collar jobs, and you can't be late. Like, you can't linger over breakfast if uh, the assembly line starts running at 6, you know, 6.30, 7, whatever. Um, if you don't show up, the assembly line can't, can't really operate. So you do actually have to be on time. So um, it didn't make sense that there was this split. You know, two different kinds of media consumers. They were actually reading two different publications. Once it was segmented like that, you could have just different kinds of content that would appeal to those different audiences. But... That also did mean that for, for the classifieds business and for, you know, required like legal announcements of partnership formation, et cetera, um, there was actually room to negotiate. So, you know, you might have some product where you're pretty sure you're like some classified ad where you're, you're pretty sure you do want the people reading the morning paper and not the people reading the evening paper. But for a lot of, for a lot of cases, you could negotiate with both papers and then figure out what the, what the right ad was. But as the, as the U.S. deindustrialized, um, it, uh, and, you know, as there was some economic chaos in the seventies, a lot of those, um, two city or two paper cities became one paper cities. Um, there's a really good chapter in, um, the Roger Lowenstein, uh, Buffett biography that talks about this because Buffett actually bought, uh, evening paper, he bought the Buffalo evening news. So an afternoon paper and then, um, was able to 
maintain that for a while. And then um, eventually the other Buffalo paper folded and um, evening news became a monopoly. And by the eighties, it was earning more in pre-tax profits than Buffett had paid for it. Again, there was some inflation, but it was like, it was a really good deal. But then by the nineties, you started to have alternative media outlets. So, um, you know, there was room to market through radio, not for classifieds, but for other stuff. Um, and cable started cutting into things. And then the internet just destroyed classifieds. Like it turns out that a lot of the media model was just you, it's, it's cheaper to deliver a sports and stock quotes and weather and, you know, local news and international news and classifieds and obituaries thing as just one big package. Um, but if people could access individual components of that digitally, then you, you lose those delivery economics. You unbundle the bundle. And, um, it turns out that, you know, a, uh, like Craigslist is the newspaper, but it's just classifieds. And then, um, blogs are the newspaper, but it's no classifieds. And it just turns out that in general, you, uh, you want to own the, the ad piece and not, not the content piece. But, um, that, that is, it's really not a, not necessarily a stable equilibrium, but what, part of what I think it reveals is that there were just different parts of the, the overall bundle that it was just really unclear if they carried their own weight or not. So you can probably assume that a lot of them mattered, but if you didn't really know, if you, if you own a monopoly, you don't, like you could ask people which parts of the, the newspaper do you read, but you also know that people are going to lie and say that they don't read horoscopes and they're going to lie and say they do read, you know, deeply researched stories on um, tragedies that happened in other countries. So you, if you go by survey data, you'll probably overestimate just how much of the kind of high, high status stuff people care about. And, um, and we know that because the high status stuff, people, people like there are people who pay for that, but um, not nearly as many of them. So, if you think about like the news business as being defined by um, like by the newspaper model, one, it's a fairly new business, or at least that it, it is a really good business versus just another fairly competitive business. That's a fairly new thing. And two, yeah, it's very much this incidental creation of um, different kinds of distribution costs that just made it sensible to bundle everything together. So uh, I do feel bad for people who, who got into the business because they're they like writing and they like, you know, getting the story. And then they find out that actually there's not really an economic role for that. Like it's a cool thing to do and it's very important and it should be done and should be done well. But, um, it's not really something you should do if your plan is to make as much money as possible. And it, you know, there are people who can, can do it for fun and they continue to do it for fun. Some of them do it for free. Some of them do it for nominal amounts of money. Um, and it's really tough to compete with that if, uh, if you have to pay the rent and somebody else has, uh, their parents paying the rent. Um, it's just, uh, really tough for you to, uh, negotiate your salary on that basis. So yeah, I do, I do feel kind of bad about, um, you know, I feel bad for, for people who just had extremely bad luck in, uh, in getting into that business at, at the wrong time, but it does happen. Um, and then that is like, that is one piece of, the news business, um, financial news is actually a totally different category. Like it is, it is just not the same business as, um, as other kinds of news and financial news has, um, it's pretty much always been lucrative if done right, but it's, it's competitive in a different way where you need to be either first or best for some category of things. And if you do, you have not quite unlimited pricing power, but a lot of pricing power. And then if you don't, um, you don't really, your business does not have a good reason to exist. So, um, there are financial publications like Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Um, the Economist is like sort of, you know, the title makes it sound like it's going to be much more business focused. It does have a business section, but it's not really a 
it's not really a business publication, but it's kind of a general news publication that is read by a lot of business people. Um, those have existed for a long time. They've been good for a long time. And, um, they can be, they can be great businesses when done well. But even within that, um, it does turn out that the, the really lucrative part is often the raw data. It's like the, like business news is almost lucrative in rough correlation to how boring a given piece of the content would be to someone who is not actively trying to make money at it. Like if you think of, um, like, let's say you're, you're thinking about the oil, it's like the, the, um, oil news business and you could imagine doing one really thoughtful deeply researched piece about the um the unmeasured emissions from these um leaky gas um yeah like leaky gas wells that um are still pumping but barely like that's that is something bloomberg did a nice story on a while ago but then um another another thing that you could produce like another piece of content you could produce would just be like a list, an extremely granular list of oil production and like where all the rigs are and who's drilling for what. And that latter one is probably one that you can sell for a whole lot more money than the deep, thoughtful piece. But you can, you can bundle them together. And that's what Bloomberg does. So they do have content that is sort of to increase their service area. It is also, um, a nice complement to the data business because the the deeply researched stories do give people something to start actually looking into as an investment or as a business decision, but um, not everyone wants to write about just business. And um, if you don't want to write about business, um, your, your choices are often like do journalism or make money, but you probably can't have both. Yeah. Though you did also write about this idea of how uh, media fortunes are made when distribution changes, both through owning that distribution and through owning the kind of content that will become more valuable. So why don't you explain uh, how media fortunes are made? There there have definitely been extremely rich people who made their money in media. And um, so you can think of someone like um, Rupert Murdoch obviously comes to mind. If you want to count the Google people as ad people or Mark Zuckerberg as an ad person, then you have lots of media fortunes there. Um, but there's also, there are more obscure people. So someone like Robert Maxwell um, or um, John Kluge was, um, I think, in one of the early Forbes 400s, he was actually number one. He uh, controlled a company called Metro Media, which was, uh, it started out with his winnings from Ogre Game, which he used to buy a radio station and then just compounded from there. Um, and what those people tended to get right was they actually did buy either they bought in, uh, they bought particular assets where competition was going away or they, they happened to buy assets that would just, um, that would benefit from a secular change in how content was distributed. So, um, Murdoch you know, famously, he did a lot of newspaper deals early on and then made his own television network. And his view on television, I think, was that media was starting to fragment and that the, the, the increment of fragmentation was different in cable, where you go from 50 channels to 100 channels. And, you know, channel number 100 is just not as interesting as the, the fifth channel, whatever it was, would have been. But it does slowly chip away at audiences. But in broadcast, because you need national content, you like the informative change is you go from three networks to four. And if you can create that fourth network and you own a lot of it, then you can do very well. So that was part of his bet. I think he actually bought those stations from, um, from Metro Media or they had previously been owned by Metro Media or something. So um, a lot of these stories kind of tie into one another. But then um, another piece of just changes in content distribution was cable itself. And one of the things that cable did was it increased the value of long tail content libraries. And 
it also created an interesting dynamic where sometimes the content was valuable, sometimes it was the, was the distribution. And if you could figure out over time which side was gaining power relatively or losing it relatively, then you could um, you could kind of time the market that way. So this is something that John Malone was really good at, where originally he owned the physical wires and um, you know the the actual physical cables um, and you know made money on that. But he did end up doing a lot of deals where um, a a cable network's content would be distributed through TCI, Malone's company, and then TCI would get equity in that network. So he was kind of hedging against the risk that if um, if TCI distributes some kind of content, that it just becomes naturally important and everybody else needs to have it in their network too. And so if he's getting some of the upside from that um from the extra distribution that happens after TCI has selected something. And then once, once just about every household has cable and, or, you know, can have cable. And once people are watching it all the time, then you start to have networks that are bidding against one another and um, the content providers may have more leverage. So at one point, Malone spun off a lot of the content assets from TCI. And then he, he bought a lot of the stock in the content assets and then, um, did not keep as much in TCI itself and the content piece did extremely well. Um, there was also, there were some deals in the, in the eighties where people realized that home entertainment meant that there was a longer tail of content consumption that, you know, if you, if a movie came out in, I don't know, 1965, um, there was just not a great aftermarket for that movie. Like there was not really a way people could watch it at home. Um, it wasn't, it generally did not go back into theaters, although Disney had some success doing that from time to time. Um, so it might, the movie might end up showing on some broadcast network at some point, but it was really, you know, if, if you have, um, you have three big networks, you have 72 hours of programming per day and that's it. So there's just not a lot of room to monetize it. But once there, once people had, um, VHS, they're, there was some room to sell some of the old content to them, but actually the the pricing on VHS for purchase was pretty much designed to make sure people didn't do that so it wouldn't compete with theaters and TV too much. Um, and so someone like Blockbuster could buy VHS tapes and then rent them out and, you know, make make some cash flow from that and um, could afford to actually pay for them. But the actual VHS t- tapes originally, it was just um, not really priced for home consumption, but DVDs definitely so DVDs did mean that all of these old content libraries were valuable. Meanwhile, the proliferation of cable channels did mean that you did not have just 72 hours of programming a day. Um, there was actually like a, you know, infinite inventory of programming. So as long as there was something that somebody would want to watch and as long as the channel in question had some way to find that person or that person had some way to find the channel really, um, it actually made sense to own these older movie libraries. So, um, there were some deals done. In the 80s and 90s, and actually even even more recently, where the the big driver of the deal was that there's this old content library, and the content is still worth something, and now there are more ways to actually convert this theoretical value into immediate revenue. So there's there's actually another piece of that, which is um, that when distribution so when distribution is changing, at first the people who make money from it are the ones who just understand the new distribution model really well. And then over time, once that understanding gets commoditized, you do actually see the content become more valuable again. And um, I think the classic story there is BuzzFeed versus the New York Times, where there's this internal New York Times memo that talked about how BuzzFeed actually got more traffic than the Times from some New York Times piece because BuzzFeed managed to package it, make it really viral. 
They blasted it out on social media. They kept recirculating it. They had it as a recommended link on their site. And so they actually ended up sort of, you know, not really stealing the New York Times around but definitely, um, definitely getting, getting the New York Times story better distributed. So, um, the Times actually took that to heart and they realized they do have to get good at social. They have to get good at search. And they did. And once the New York Times and BuzzFeed are roughly equally good at gaming the Facebook algorithm and getting stuff to trend on Twitter and making sure that it ranks well on Google, um, once they're equally good at that, then it's a question of who has better content. And, um, the New York Times won that one. Like they, they, they do in fact, um, they did in fact have better writers than BuzzFeed News. Now BuzzFeed News no longer exists. So, um, they, they were able to win that one. And I think that's that's something to think about with media cycles is that early on, it can get really exciting to say that we're changing the way people find what they want to read or watch or listen to. And so a ton of money will be made by whoever figures it out first. But once once everyone understands that, that it's actually what do they want to listen to? What do they want to read? What do they want to watch? And if you own that, then all of these people with their equally good distribution networks are in a bidding war to buy the content from you. You can actually view Netflix's current evolution as um, sort of sort of indicating that we are at this point where streaming is maturing, but streaming distribution is a little bit different. Where it like the scale economics are just much more powerful, and um, it is like Netflix is the default high bidder for pretty much any piece of good content, and um, they they will get a better return on it than somebody else. Like um, Warner Brothers Discovery, like they have an app, they have their proprietary stuff, but Netflix could probably pay them more than they would make themselves for a given show. And um, Hollywood has been doing that kind of thing for a really long time. Like they've been trading movie rights amongst amongst themselves and um, collaborating and cooperating and competing and trying to trying to come up with these elaborate financial structures that that secretly screw over one side or another in a transaction. So in in one sense, that's nothing new. But what is new with Netflix is just the pure scale and the fact that the scale simultaneously means that they that a given piece of content can be seen by more eyeballs so netflix can pay more for it but also because netflix has better data they can do better recommendations so it's not just that um they can you know that one percent of the audience wants to watch this show that the the company with the biggest audience at the thus has the biggest one percent it can pay for it but it's also it compounds because it it might be that netflix can get two percent of their audience to watch it and um Amazon or or Warner Brothers can only get one percent of their audience to watch it. So Netflix can be the the high bidder by a very wide margin. But that's the thing about being if you're systematically able to be the high bidder relative to everybody else, then um, you don't have to bid even if you even if the content is worth twice as much to you as it is to somebody else. You don't have to bid twice as much. You can bid five percent more, win the deal, and then the other ninety five percent is just your margin. So that that brings us to the layoffs. There've been massive l- l- layoffs recently, and. One thing I'm wondering, well, I want you to hear your general thoughts on the layoffs, but why don't more journalists try to become business journalists, i.e. if you can uh, get information that will help move uh, move markets in some way or move you know, a purchasing decision or investment decision or, or some other kind of decision that has dollars attached to it, there's lots of ways to make money. Well, I think in a lot of cases, if they were interested in business, they would have majored in something different and their first job would not have been at uh, a magazine or a blog or something like that. So I think some of it is just that, that they, they were not especially interested in that topic. And, um, you know, some people, they, 
they become good business journalists because they sort of fall backwards into it. And then for other people, it's sort of like they, they become business writers because they were actually in, in the business world and not in media and then started writing about it, which is, you know, more, more in my direction. I've been writing for a long time, but writing as a full time thing was really not, not on my radar as a realistic job opportunity until, um, until again, a, a shift in distribution, which was just COVID eliminating the commutes of the vast majority of white collar workers. So, um, suddenly they all had free time. They all had, uh, they were not spending money at restaurants or going on vacation. So they had disposable income. So really good time to be selling subscription content to, to that specific audience. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think they just don't find business as, as interesting as I do. And I find it really interesting. Um, I, I guess you could like, there are other categories that do pay reasonably well, um, or can pay reasonably well, like sports, like sports media, it remains lucrative because the, the live shows, like there are people who just will insist on watching a game live. And so you have pricing power if you have the rights to the game. And there's a lot of ancillary stuff that, um, the owner of those rights can do to improve the size of the audience. And, um, so it's a, it's a loyal demographic and that is, that is certainly valuable for advertising purposes and subscription purposes. But, um, I, I wouldn't, you know, if, if the diff stopped working out as a business, I, my first thought would not be, well, I'm going to learn the rules of basketball and just write about basketball for the rest of my life because maybe that would be lucrative. No, I would, I would probably do something completely unrelated if, uh, if this did not work. Maybe now let's get to layoffs more broadly. Like, is this just, the beginning of the end or, you know, just way more to come or what, what how do we think about this? It, it's not the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the year. Um, nobody <laughs> wants to fire someone, you know, three days before Christmas. So layoffs always drop in December and then every, and that's also when companies are finishing their annual planning process. So they have figured out their budgets and then they come in in January, but it's been reset. Um, a lot of times like they, they will know by, by December that they're going to be laying people off and then they do it in January. So, um, layoffs, I think if you, if you take the run rate, last time I looked at it, um, the January 2024 layoff run rate was about, um, one third of what it was in January 2023. So, um, there has been a pretty stark decline actually in the, in the level of layoffs. What I think has changed is that, um, you know, AI has, has changed a lot of things in the last 12 months. And one of the things that's happened is when you think about how a company executes an AI strategy, they have to, um, you know, it's not something where you can launch an MVP in a week and then see if customers like it. Or, or if you can't do that, it's usually you're launching something that, um, will be a free chat GPT feature in a couple months. So you have to, have to really know what you're doing for that to be your business model. But if you're, if you're doing something serious in AI, you generally have to have a research team, have them actually work on building models. You spend a lot of money on hardware, on GPUs. You actually have a lag time where you know that the model is improving and um, you can probably generally have a sense of how good it'll get. But there's a there's a long time where they are training the model and it hasn't been released yet. And one thing that means is just there's a lag between making the decision to spend money on AI and then um, actually having, having a product. And there's even a lag between making the decision to spend money and being able to start developing some products. So what I suspect has happened is that a number of companies have made the, the big fixed AI investment, like they've made their big push in that direction. And um, that perhaps their original plan was something consumer facing, something user facing, but they um, they have concluded that that's actually a really tough market. 
um, like the, the consumer facing AI stuff, a lot of it is really impressive, but you have this small cohort of products that have just totally changed the way people do certain things like chat GPT has changed a lot about my research process and, um, and my programming and then, um, code, code completion tools, you know, copilots, readable AI, things like that have changed the way that I write, uh, write programs. Um, but it's, a lot of the other user-facing AI products, they were a cool gimmick for a while, and then people forgot about them. The churn rates on these are insane, and the fixed cost is non-trivial. So you really can't uh, can't sustain very high churn, plus low margins, plus high fixed costs for, for very long. But a lot of companies, a lot of their proprietary unique data is internal. It's what are the emails they've sent internally? What are the metrics that they track within their business? And how can they optimize those? And that is actually amenable to throwing GPUs and AI researchers at the problem, but just asking them, make this 1% better. And so when you look at some of these layoffs, a number of them have explicitly cited AI, or they are implicitly about AI. The people getting laid off are often people, um, like Duolingo explicitly said that it's they can get good enough machine translation much more cheaply. They just don't need as many freelance translators. Um, in Google, I think they, they indicated something about how AI was increasing the sales team's efficiency. And, um, it, AI, AI in sales has been just an interesting phenomenon to watch. Like it's mostly visible when the LLM spits out something wildly inappropriate for the cold email and, um, someone posts it to Twitter, but it has probably just increased the number of, the increasing amount of cold outreach that one person can do. So if they're spending less time on cold outreach, they're spending more time actually talking to the, the good prospects. So they are more efficient. And, um, especially at Google scale, there's just, there is in the end a finite number of potential advertisers you can reach out to. So if it becomes 10% more efficient to get those advertisers on the phone, then, um, you probably need about 10% fewer people. So I think that there, there is some fungibility on the AI investment between using it to increase revenue and using it to decrease OPEX and that the increased revenue part is just a lot scarier than it was when companies committed to spending a lot on AI. So the decreased OPEX part is where that wins and the biggest component in OPEX, um, unless you're at a steel mill or at an AI company, the biggest OPEX component is almost certainly your personnel expense. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Real quick, what's the easiest choice you can make? Taking the window instead of the middle seat. Outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate. What about selling with Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded. And when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time. Plus, Shopify Magic is free for every Shopify seller. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com 
slash moment of zen. Go to shopify.com slash moment of zen now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash moment of zen. In terms of where things are going, do you think that uh, investigative reporting um, or, or, or some of it that we're accustomed to, there's just not going to be an economy for it? Or is it just going to be done in a much cheaper way? Um, what, do you, what do you think happens? Yeah. So um, investigative reporting, I, I wrote a piece on this a long time ago. And um, I think the the, the, the punchy conclusion is um, if you want to do investigative reporting, you need to like billionaires because there are two ways billionaires make it happen. One is they say, wow, your magazine only loses $10 million a year. That's like my third most expensive hobby. So I'm going to buy it. And you just keep doing what you were doing because I'm nostalgic for this magazine. Um, so that's one way that you get billionaires funding investigative reporting. Um, it does mean that they can't do, it's a lot harder to do investigative reporting on the billionaire or in the billionaire's friends or people who remind the billionaire of himself. Um, this was actually part of the LA Times story was that they were writing about someone. They were, it was like they're, they, um, they were writing about someone who was just biographically very, very similar to the owner of the LA Times. He didn't really like that. And so had some, he had some disputes with the editor. The editor ultimately left. Um, so that's that's one part of the the billionaire to good investigative journalism pipeline. And the other part is that um, so there was this the reason I wrote about investigative journalism years ago was that um, Mother Jones did a really good story on for profit prisons. It was a long investigation and they spent a lot of money on it. Someone worked full time on it for, I think, many months and was actually embedded in the system and things like that. And I think what they said was that. They got like 5K in subscriptions or donations or something, and that it was actually a money-losing proposition for them. But when that story came out, the big publicly traded for-profit prison company stocks dropped like 30 or 40 or 50%, something crazy like that. So if they had spent as much money on puts as they did on funding that journalist, then they would have been able to do like 50 such stories with the profits. And I think that's actually, that is legitimately true and it is a legitimate motivator of deep investigative journalism is if you can make 50 times your money in a month on puts then you are extremely motivated to find every bad thing that a publicly traded company has done put together this bulletproof report on it and then blast it out so um i my kind of um modest proposal was that we should actually make it significantly easier for companies to go public specifically so that there will be more dubious publicly traded companies that short sellers will want to target and that will actually finance investigation into those companies like uh, if someone is running um i don't know a ponzi scheme um well not a ponzi scheme if someone is just selling really bad defective products or they're good at marketing so they're making money their customers all hate them but they just use their ads to find new customers it's a grift um that that can be annoying but if it's if it takes many months to actually investigate it and figure out what they're doing and find all the evidence and track down someone who will say on the record what was going on or will point you to whatever documentation you would need to actually prove that they are really up to no good, um, it may just not be worth it for someone who's motivated to do that. But once that company is publicly traded, it's definitely worth it. And so it will get done. So in, in that case, it's again, billionaires paying for investigative journalism. It's just, um, it, there's, there are fewer layers of intermediation there because they're, they're paying you to find stocks that will go down really fast so they can short them. But it, it is kind of, kind of the same deal. Like it, it does kind of make sense of the abstract that like we, we all want this stuff in theory, but 
we don't, most of us don't do it. Like most of us do not spend many months investigating someone or some, some organization that may or may not be up to no good. Um, people like to do kind of drive by assessments. Um, you see this a lot in just Twitter discourse on various misdeeds by various people is that a lot of it is extremely superficial. You find the one thing that looks like a smoking gun because you've stripped out all the context and you, you know, you say it and it confirms the biases of everyone who agrees with you. And then when people disagree with you, that confirms your biases about them too. So everyone, everyone kind of enjoys that. Um, it's just less fun to spend a really, really long time trying to answer a question where the answer may turn out to be boring. So you need some way for people who want to do that to get paid. And those are, those are two billionaire centric ways to do it. So yeah, I think, uh, if you, if you do care about investigative journalism, you probably should advocate a lower top lower top marginal tax rate and um, more favorable tax treatment for capital gains. Yeah. And unfortunately, journalists don't seem to love billionaires too much <laughs> in terms of wanting to curry favor with them. Um, uh, there, it's interesting. I mean, zooming back out and you know, touching on something we discussed l last week, uh, I might ask you for some advice again. Of course, I'm trying to build, uh, to make a fortune in, in, in media. I'm, I'm doing, uh, for people who missed the last week's episode, you know, doing business, uh, media, podcast first, but expanding to other, other formats, trying to help people make, uh, in, you know, better investment decisions, purchasing decisions, or just get better at the craft of their job. Um, whether it's HR, finance, or, or, or something else, uh, you know, definitely inspired by sort of the industry dive niche, uh, niche business approach. But I, I don't know if I'm really taking advantage of a new distribution channel. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm owning content that will get more valuable with time. So I'm asking myself, uh, after hearing this, Hey, should I be doing something additional or, or, or different? Uh, if, if you were me and trying to make a, for, uh, a fortune building a, a media empire, uh, how, how might you think about it? So different kinds of content do have different expiration dates. And I did make the deliberate decision with my newsletter that I want, I'm not averse to writing about things that just happened. Often those things are interesting, but I did want to write things that I think will be as useful or more useful a year from now, five years from now. Um, you know, eventually it'll all be just of historical interest and no one will actually, you know, no one will be 50 years from now reading old issues of the diff to get insights. Like everything will either be common knowledge or wrong or irrelevant over that time period. But, um, that is, that is something that I aim for. And so one of the things that that means is that when I'm writing about some emerging event, I'm trying to put it into some context of why is this thing happening now? Why do the things of this nature happen? Does this actually challenge some other theory of the way the world works? And so it is sort of, um, it's, I, I guess you could view it as sort of the, um, Harvard Business School case study approach for like the, the point of a case study is not that you went to Harvard and you learned all about like the rise of the Cuisinart. No, the point is like you learned about how durable goods businesses work and how distribution to retailers works and how to manage a supply chain and how to move that supply chain to places with cheap labor. And then what are the obstacles to that? And those things are more generalizable. So I think that's, that's probably the thing to, to emphasize is like, what are the generalizable conclusions? And then what are, what are some ways that this particular story, interview, anecdote, whatever challenges your mental model? So I suppose that's what you're doing right now is like, you have the mental model of like, I can build a media company and it'll be a good media company. And then, um, it turns out that there's like this, this broad model of media where actually this particular category is more challenging than it looks and, um, it's harder to get an edge. Um, it is. Like it's true that 
the really profitable thing to do is catch a distribution medium when it's early, always be slightly better than everybody else, and then sell at exactly sell right before the distribution part gets commoditized. And ideally, take that sale, roll that money into your content, and then you collect a royalty on everybody else getting better distribution and then paying you for your content. Like that's that's the dream. A few people have pulled it off. Um, they're all very, very happy. Some of them are very lucky. Uh, but not everybody can do it. And it does require a lot of luck. Like if we're talking about this as a general mental model and then we try to apply it, well, the first thing to say is like, if you and I are talking about some new distribution model, wh what reason do we have to think that it's early versus just like a brief blip that is going to go away? And those things are really hard to measure. Like there was a, I, there was like a podcast hype cycle in the mid 2000s. Um, like when we got the term podcast, it was because you would put the, you download the MP3 and put it on your iPod. Um, we still call them podcasts, but we don't have iPods anymore. Um, so there was like, there was a hype cycle and then podcasts, they didn't quite die, but they just seemed to get a lot less attention after a while. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if listener hours were just continuously ramping up from like 2005 to 2015 or something. But, um, then podcasts either, either A suddenly got big again. And it's not entirely clear to me why that would be, or, or B, there was a, you know, some hit like serial or something that caused people to write long think pieces on the rise of the podcast. And they were able to pull in lots of data on how big podcasts are and how much people are listening to them. Um, but you, if you were looking at podcasts as a distribution medium, um, let's say in 2010, you could actually look at them and say, well, they peaked and then they disappeared or they peaked and then they reached some steady state. It turned out that a lot of people still wanted to listen to the radio. So people want to listen to music and the podcast as a medium was just not an especially big deal. And then you would have missed, um, that, that next resurgence. Uh, I don't know if that, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it's always like, it's fun to talk about the, the abstraction and like, or to like look at something that happened and then in retrospect say, okay, here are the forces at work. And then it is, of course, much, much more challenging to say, okay, now that we have this nice, abstract, clean mental model, let's start applying it to messy reality today. So like, I think the, the most simple pattern matching approach would be that you want to be like the first trade magazine that is VR first. And that, that does feel like just smashing random buzzwords together. You just take like, Here's a here's an industry that has 50% free cash flow margins, and then here's an industry where you can raise you know 50 million dollars as a pre-seed round when you don't have a product or a team or a roadmap, and your deck is one page. Um, so you know that always feels like an exciting chemical reaction in uh, in finance and tech. But there, you know, there there might be something something interesting there where I can imagine that um, there are. There are certainly some categories of um, industrial trade magazine where actually being able to look at something in three dimensions is A, cool, and B, useful. So, you know, being able to take like a virtual walking tour of a giant new iron mine and, you know, look at the equipment and see what people are are doing, that does actually seem like it could be kind of cool. Uh, it seems like a, a decent practical case for the metaverse. In fact, it seems like the kind of thing where um, you might have Apple people, you know, instead of Apple um, spending however many tens of millions of dollars a year um, flying people from SF to um, Shenzhen, um, you might have at least some of those people strapping on their helmet and taking a virtual walking tour of the assembly line, you know, looking down at someone and realizing that they are, they're the ones screwing up the process or that the process is actually screwed up and they're the one who's figured out a workaround. Um, so you like that, but then, 
once once we are the live real time walking toward the factory floor, it's no longer a trade magazine. It's no longer business media. It's actually, and it's also um, something that Apple has locked down. So um, so that that version probably doesn't work. But um, there's, I mean, trade magazines. The other so the other meta model you can use is just the the demographic transition model that. There are a lot of small and mid-sized companies that were founded 50 years ago, and the founder is still the person running it, and that person's just not going to be around forever and is looking to retire. So there may end up being some turnover in in these magazines, and I'm sure some of that will just be consolidation, and some of it will be publications winding down because the founder, they made their money, they they feel like they don't want to sell it to someone who might screw it up, and so they just close it after a while. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Speaking of fields where you can raise, uh, you know, a few million dollars off just a slide deck, we are going deep on AI um, because crypto media did so well. Um, and AI media is, is just getting off the ground. Um, but in crypto media, crypto is a largely, you know, retail driven phenomenon. And, and, and it's a, largely a uh, sort of, you know, there's a lot of price changes every day. And so people, you know, need to follow what's happening in order to make, you know, immediate decisions. Whereas AI, it's more, uh, it's not as day to day. I need to make a huge, de- you know, decision on my entire portfolio based on what's happening. But it is, you know, people do need to know how to rearchitect their their business as a result of AI, um, and also, you know, what to invest in, et cetera. But it's a little bit more uh, incumbent, or you know, or bigger company uh, than sort of, hey, just the average, you know, Robin Hood YOLO investor. That's true. There, there have been a couple AI newsletters. Some are good. Some are just not so good. Um, and there, it, it seems like they actually went through a much faster growth cycle than the crypto media did. Like CoinDesk was around, you know, has been around for a very long time. The block, um, is, you know, newer, I believe, but has, uh, has also has made some inroads. There have been a couple other publications out there and, um, lots of people are writing about crypto independently and doing a great job of covering, covering the space. So, um, but with, with AI, it, it did feel like there were half a dozen newsletters that just didn't exist before chat GPT and suddenly all have tens of thousands of subscribers. And some people have been able to flip their newsletter and just exit. And that's, that's been awesome for them. But I, I'm not sure what it is that actually caused the, the AI media ecosystem to develop so fast. I think one possibility is that people did pattern measure crypto and they realized that um, you can actually like writing media about some emerging category where people really want to know what's going on right now can in fact be very lucrative. Uh, another possibility is that a lot of these newsletters are partly written by AI. Um, certainly there, there are some, some cases where the research roundup, it just does not seem humanly possible for one person to have read all of those papers and understood them at all. Um, and when I talk to people who do read AI papers, it's not like, you sit down for an hour and read a paper and then you're done. It's like you read the paper and then try to implement the algorithm and then figure out if they, they skip some steps that they should have told you about, or they have some, there's like some weird undocumented thing that's in, in one of the equations. They don't really explain why it's there, but it doesn't work unless you, you include that term or adjust for this thing or whatever. Um, it, it's very time consuming. Like you can imagine an AI media outlet that actually has to have a very significant budget because it's hiring people who either are AI researchers or, 
you know, we're almost AI researchers. But then like, do you, do you really want to have a job ad that's like, were you not quite smart enough to finish your PhD, but do you still know how to read complicated equations? And do you sort of remember Python? Come work for me. You'll make one third as much as you would have if you had done slightly better and been slightly smarter, but at least it's a job. Um, yeah, it just sounds kind of humiliating. Uh, so I don't, I don't actually think you could do that. Like, I think you, you would sort of have to, um, like maybe you'd actually, if you wanted to do AI journalism, like covering the AI space, covering it well and writing something like, I, I think the, the criterion is like, you want to write something that um, Sam Altman reads that like when he opens his email in the morning and has 50 new messages because he's been asleep for two hours, um, you want him to open yours first and read it and forward it to people at OpenAI. That's an incredibly high bar. But if you set that bar, you also know that if, if people at the top of the industry are reading it, everyone else has to be reading it. And, um, everyone who invests in them has to be reading it. And people who want to be in the industry might subscribe to it and then feel guilty about not reading it, but they'll still keep paying for it. And so for a product like that, you could potentially charge a lot more. And I think, I think what that deliverable looks like is we do read the papers. We do try to implement some of the results. We look at whether or not this actually seems serious and makes sense. Um, and you might, you could do that with a full-time staff. I think you'd call it a think tank rather than, or you call it a think tank or a consultancy rather than a, journalistic outfit and your your price um you probably like round to the nearest 5k for the cost of an annual subscription but that that could be a valuable product just because there it, it's hard to know what specific things to focus on and what i get a lot of value out of is actually just periodically hanging out with people who are in the ai space or being in group chats where a bunch of people work at it work at ai labs and what's interesting is like even people who are all in the industry are not all reading the same stuff. They're not all reading the same papers. They're not all pursuing the same goals. Um, and maybe they are. And just like different people are more or less willing to say specific things about what they're doing in a chat with competitors or something. But like, um, when you, like, what's, I, I just don't think that it's actually humanly possible to keep up with AI as one person. Um, we probably need an AI to help or we need like a staff of very smart researchers to help. And then I, I just, what makes that less viable is why would someone who could do that do that and not actually do the research? Like who who wants to do that? Maybe maybe there are people out there who um they they got their PhD in you know computer science or some or statistics or something, but really their dream was to write and this is finally their opportunity to do so, but they probably don't exist. Yeah. It's it's and that's a broader reason as to why tech journalism perhaps has struggled in the last decade is it's like if you understand the technology you probably want to be building it or, or part of it in some way or you'll make more money doing that or if you understand the business you probably want to be investing in it or, or using that sort of uh you know in, in research ability as, as as a way to invest or you you want to go independent and make you know make a bunch of money like you uh, ben thompson um and and you know very few others, uh, Packy, et, et cetera, um, have. And so the people who are willing to join a place like TechCrunch, um, you know, that likely can't do those three things. And so our path is to make, uh, or our, our opportunity is to make a, a compelling enough opportunity. And that's what we're trying to do is, is say, hey, do you want to be the next Burn or the next Packy or the next Ben Thompson? We can help you do that and take some of the things you don't want to do off of your plate. But, um, but yeah, it's never going to be quite good as sort of what OpenAI could hire someone to to create on, on their behalf. 
Yeah, there it is. So there is an interesting dynamic with um, tech journalism in particular, where the skill set is so close to venture that people do get poached. And so it's just really hard to persuade someone to do a job where they don't have carried interest when they could, uh, they could, they could make money. They could, they could write checks instead of blog posts and get paid, you know, 10 X as much. So you do see that attrition and I'm not sure what takes care of that. Like one thing that takes care of it is just some people are ideologically opposed to being capitalists. And then you end up with this problem of you have um, the most important, like the most, one of the most strategically important business sectors and like the big thing the U.S. outperforms on being covered mostly by people who are pretty anti-business and think billionaires are a policy failure or whatever. So um, that has, that has some problems, but like that's just, it is just a fact of life that if you have a job that pays more in status than in money, it's going to select for people who want status more than money. And that means it's going to select against people who have like a standard conservative lifestyle where they buy a house and have kids. Um, this was my, my modest proposal to um, even up bias in academia was that you give um, everyone, every grad student and professor a, um, you give them like 20 times the normal child tax credit. You just have this massive subsidy for having a family while being a teacher. And you do it through the child tax credit because that way the schools don't have to change any of their behavior and it doesn't affect their cost structure at all. Like their decision is exactly what the decision would be before. And the bet there is that there is some attrition from people who leave academia because they want to make more money specifically because they want to have a family. And, um, those people are just, they're, they're going to tend to be more conservative than the people who want to be single and live a life of the mind in a very big and expensive city where they have a tiny apartment, but it's fine. So, um, you could, you could imagine like a similar evening out sort of policy in a lot of spaces, but what you also have to take into account is that anytime a job pays well in status, it's going to select people who are less motivated by money. And some of them have antipathy towards money and the people who really like it. That is uh, that is accurate. Um, let, let's segue into another um, sort of way of uh, sort of reconciling the uh, the old and the new, uh, the changing nature of fame uh, post and pre uh, the feed. What, why don't you uh, unpack that? Yeah, so I wrote a post a while ago called "Is Everything Getting Old?" and um, or why why is everything getting old? So someone someone replied and pointed out that one reason that celebrities in particular are getting old is that um, mass media used to mean that we all had pretty much the same celebrities. Like if there are only a few radio stations, you're probably listening to the same radio station as somebody else. If there are only a few TV stations, you're watching the same stuff as somebody else, et cetera. Um, and other kinds of media get marketed through the media. So if you are watching TV or listening to the radio, you hear the ads or see the ads for movies. So you're watching the same movies as other people. And that means we all kind of agree that particular people are very famous. But once you have algorithmic feeds, someone could be famous to you and not famous to somebody else. Um, and this is like, some of this is just a, a, a fact of life for people who are over 30 is that you will hear about someone as like the most famous celebrity ever. And you think that they're just fictional. They, it's just implausible to you that this person is at all well known, but then it turns out they have millions of fans. Um, so once, once we have these algorithmic feeds, like we just don't agree on who is famous. And, um, like I, I cannot name a single K-pop star, but I know that K-pop is this absolutely massive cultural phenomenon and that it's everywhere and that, there are numerous bands and they're all touring all the time. And, you know, the, the shows are wildly hyped, et cetera. Um, so I, my celebrity frame of reference is pretty much still stuck in the nineties and two thousands. 
And then it's other, like the more, more recent celebrities are people who the average person just doesn't necessarily know who they are. So like you mentioned some newsletter writers, I, you know, I read them. I like them. I assume that other people in tech also read them and like them and know who they are. And that, you know, if I say Packy invested in this, I don't have to say which Packy was it. Um, so, but, but if I'm talking to someone who's not in tech, it just doesn't mean anything to them to say that. But then they, they may have, they'll have their own interest and mention, you know, allude to someone who's very famous to them who I've never heard of and has no connotations to me. So the net result of that is like, if you, if you want someone to be, like, if you want to, I don't know, hire someone as a celebrity spokesperson, they often have to be someone who got famous before TikTok and Facebook and Twitter. And those people just keep getting older. I almost feel like, um, and Taylor Swift, um, you know, being, I guess, quasi engaged to an NFL star. It's like a merger in this declining industry that is still generating lots of cash flow. And so they're doing like the sensible consolidation where you put these two large entities together and there are, there are synergies and things. Um, clearly very, very economically, uh, powerful right now. Um, because Taylor Swift is, you know, as I, I think was the, the Swedish central bank said that Taylor Swift actually change some of their economic fundamentals. Um, so I, I think it was like, a, there was like a slight inflation uptick because of a Taylor Swift tour or something like that. So, um, so those, like, those will probably just be the famous people, um, for, you know, until they die. And then because AI is getting good at replicating, you know, replicating people based on videos and um, audio clips, they may become the famous people even after they're dead. Like they could be, you know, the way that, um, like this happens with, with religious texts, for example, and it happens with like the founding fathers where we're just, we're not making any more founding fathers. Like you can't get added to that category. Once it gets solidified, once it, it fits some particular role, you just don't get any more of them. Um, you know, once, once a holy book is written, you tend to not have very many prophets because if you have an additional prophet, but then you have to figure out if you're going to rewrite the holy book and does everyone, every single adherent to this agree that this, um, you know, this new addition to the book is actually legitimate and not heretical? Probably not. So you end up with schisms. So yeah, things just, um, you know, they, they're dynamic for a while. They grow for a while and then they reach some stopping point and, um, they, and then things get kind of fixed. And that's just much more extreme in the case of fame than, than with other things. I think there's like an, a, another interesting dynamic of fame where, um, while the the half life is actually getting longer for the the super famous nationally recognizable celebrities, it's getting shorter for other kinds of fame because it sort of exists at this. Um, it, it's kind of defined by the social media meme cycle of something happens, so this person is well known, and then there's like a twenty four to forty eight hour period where we're all riffing on it, and then we just forget about it. And so there are these brief spurts of fame, but it's just not enough time to sign a celebrity endorsement deal before you're you're no longer famous you're just someone who once tweeted a banger or once made a funny video yeah the um maybe as well put maybe lastly we could focus on um the piece you just wrote which is the business cadence case against every company is a tech company yeah so this was um partly prompted by the fact that fossil the watch company is getting out of the smart watch business and going back to just the watch business and um I, I've always had a soft spot for fossil because when I was in high school, I, uh, I started researching stocks and pitching stocks to my dad and his broker. And at one point, fossil was one of my pitches. I'd actually never heard of the company or, you know, didn't really wasn't familiar with the products, but the stock was cheap. And so I pitched it. It did really well. I got a fossil watch for Christmas that year. And it was like, you know, 
it was, you know, the first time I had made a financial, you know, made a capital marks decision that resulted in me getting a nice wash. So, um, very, very special moment for me. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kept in, you know, kept, kept track of them vaguely ever since. And, um, so it was kind of, you know, sad to see that that hadn't worked out, but it reminded me that Intel had actually tried to get into the watch business at one point because, um, very early on, they realized they, they make transistors. Transistors can be used to, um, to create a nice digital display on a watch and they can do that better than anybody else. So they'll be the dominant digital watch company. And, um, if, you know, other things had transistorized, digitized and didn't really go back. So probably watches would do that too. And then what happened was they, they did that. They bought a watch company. They started making watches and, um, they, what, what quickly happened was transistors kept getting cheaper. And so the digital part of digital wash became a very small portion of the cost and became a very, very small factor in whether or not consumers would buy it. The thing consumers actually cared about was how does it look? It is a fashion accessory. And it turned out that, um, Intel is really good at a lot of things. They are not very good at tracking and predicting and creating trends in fashion. And, um, they're not especially good at distributing things to mall retailers and other, other retailers. So, um, they, um, that was a very expensive mistake for them. They, they ended up winding that down. Um, I believe one of the, one of the founders would always wear his, uh, Microma. So that was the, the watch company they bought. You know, where is Microma? It's just this, this reminder that it is, it is possible to, even if you're very smart, to waste colossal amounts of money in something dumb. But I think that that, there is like this broad metaphor where Intel was just operating at a different cadence and, um, they were, they were good at different things. And then Fossil, they were used to being a watch company, used to being, you know, not, not like high fashion, but it is, it's a fashion business. It's about aesthetics and it's about tweaking something just enough that it's clearly different and then selling it to someone who bought the previous version. And that's not, there's, there is a little bit of that in tech, but usually when a company gets to the point where that's what they're doing, they're like, tweaking the product slightly, moving things around and raising the price 20%. Um, usually that's the sign that one of their competitors or a startup is going to come in and destroy them. Um, but with fashion, that's just, that's what you could do and what you have to do. So it operates at a different pace and you can't really mix two different paces within the same business. You either have people who are constantly waiting on someone. And so they're annoyed, or you have people who are constantly being pestered by someone and there are no updates. So they're annoyed. Um, and, it, I also realized that um, this pacing thing, it also affects, um, it also applies to when companies try to get into financial services. So GE, um, GE Capital is like this, uh, you know, uh, cautionary tale about what happens when a company diversifies into financial services. So GE um, made originally appliances and things, but eventually things like gas turbines, medical equipment, um, power plant equipment, stuff like that, like really expensive capital goods. They realized that they could actually smooth out their customers' cash flows by lending customers the money to buy these products. And so instead of every 20 years, you spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars refreshing your turbine investment. It's like every year you spend some money on G, some money on interest to GE. And maybe if you, um, you could swap out one turbine and replace it with another one and your financing charge goes up a little bit, but it's not like a huge capital expenditure. And meanwhile, GE had a huge balance sheet, um, good credit rating, and they knew what was going on in all of their end markets. And they, they tracked that very, very closely because they were obsessed with meeting their earnings estimate. And it's really hard to do that if your demand estimate is off by even a couple percent. So GE was actually in a really good position to underwrite a lot of these loans, but, um, once they started doing that, GE Capital became very profitable. Like it's 
you know, if you can, if you can borrow at triple A ratings and lend at more than, you know, lend at a lower rating, but to someone who you're actually pretty confident is not going to default, that, that could be great. If you are borrowing short term and lending long term, there is a spread to capture there. So GE Capital became this really profitable business for them. And they expanded from, we're just like the strategic financing arm of GE to, we are just a really big balance sheet and we're looking for ways to deploy our, our, our uh, balance sheet profitably. And then in 2008, when funding markets froze up, it turned out that a lot of their short-term borrowing was just not getting rolled over. And then their long-term lending, some of it was in things that uh, there's just no ready market for you know the the last eight years on a 25-year deal leasing a turbine to somebody. So um, they 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 ran into some problems, but they it was it was partly a cadence problem. So if GE starts having quality issues, their customers tell them early because. A lot of times the quality issue initially shows up as this is not performing perfectly reliably or it's only at 99.9% efficiency and we're used to 99.95%. Like you get a lot of early warnings because with big expensive hardware, there's a lot of built-in redundancy. There's a lot of monitoring. Like people spend a lot on this stuff and they want to make sure it works right. And um, the, the cost of labor is comparatively small. So you can, you can put a lot of labor into making sure it works right and measuring how well it does that. So they would have time. If they ran into problems with their traditional physical business, but in in financial markets, like if you run into a problem with your business and your business is we're borrowing for thirty days and lending for twenty years, um, you you if you run into those problems, um, you've got thirty days to figure out a new business model and rearchitect your entire balance sheet, or you're out. So. GE did end up, they, they re-architected their balance sheet by raising some really expensive funding and, um, they did survive, but they've been pretty much limping along ever since. And now, now they're splitting up and different, um, different pieces of the business will go into different successor entities. So yeah, it, it, it's not, it's not like the original vendor financing idea was a bad idea. Like vendor financing can go very, very badly when companies, when demand is not there, but you can always finance your way into demand existing. Um, there's this, wonderful case study from the 1960s of Brunswick, the bowling equipment company, because they realized bowling alleys are really profitable, but the guys who want to start bowling alleys do not have enough money to start them. So Brunswick realized we could just lend them the money and then they, you know, they're, they're selling access to the bowling lane. They're selling people here. They'll, they'll make it back. Um, they did that. And then it ended up being that every city had extremely high bowling alley density. Bowling got slightly less trendy. A bunch of those companies went under and it just turned out the world had a lot more bowling pins and um, other bowling equipment than it could ever possibly need. So Brunswick uh, did not do well. Yeah. Um, well, uh, w- well put. Let's, uh, let, let's, let's wrap on that. We're a bit over time. Uh, this was a great deep dive into all, all things media and otherwise. Um, Burnt, until next time. Indeed. It was fun. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 